Hello everyone, my name is Rhys Karlinski and this is Young History, episode 153 on Malaysia. The capitalist country is Kuala Lumpur. The name comes from the word Malay, which is from the word Malaju from the Malay language. The word is believed to mean to accelerate, which describes the accelerating currents of the rivers in the Malay Peninsula. And La is a Latin suffix for land, so the full name is simply the land of the Malay, which is the people that live in Malaysia. Some facts for you guys are that the Petronas Towers in Kuala Lumpur, which are these tool twin towers that have a little connecting bridge between them. You've probably seen them if you've ever looked up anything with Malaysia. They're very famous. Stand at 452 meters, which make them 1,483 feet tall and one of the tallest buildings in the world. And for a time, they were the tallest building in the entire world. Malaysia is home to one of the oldest rainforests in the world, the Taman Negra National Park. It is estimated to be 130 million years old, making it older even than the Amazon rainforest. The Batu Caves, located just north of Kuala Lumpur, feature a series of caves and cave temples. The site is a significant Hindu pilgrimage site with a massive golden statue to Lord Murugan that guards the entrance. Georgetown in Penang, which was established by the British, is famous for its vibrant street art. The city is adorned with murals and sculptures created by both local and international artists, which adds a very unique and artistic touch to the streets of the city. Malaysia is known as the durian capital of the world. The durian, often referred to as king of fruits, is a unique and horrific smelling tropical fruit that is enjoyed by many people in Malaysia and a lot of Southeast Asia. And literally this fruit, I worked with it back at the ice cream shop I used to work with. You cut it open and it literally smells like gym socks. It's That's perfect description. It's so bad. It just smells horrible, but it is a unique flavor. The flavor is nothing like the taste and it's it's very, very popular in this region. It's becoming popular around the world. So that's durian and it comes from here in vast quantities. But with that being said, that's pretty much all I have for you guys to start. I really don't want to dilly-dally any more than I usually do, which is usually for about two minutes like I did today. Nonetheless, this is going to be the start of our episode. So thank you guys so much for being here. I'm glad you're listening. Glad you want to learn about a little bit about Malaysia. And one more time, my name is Rhys Ralinski. This is Young History. And this is Malaysia. Hope you guys enjoy. Our origins begin around 40,000 years ago, because although we don't know a lot about the people that were first here, archaeologists are able to date the oldest remains in Malaysia to this very date. Archaeology and genealogy suggest that the ancestors of the Malay people migrated from an area near China and moved down through the Malay Peninsula. As time went on, influence from India caused Buddhism and Hinduism to spread across Malay and Borneo. Sanskrit was also adopted as the main writing system of the nation. And we don't know a lot about this early period pre the turn of the eras in Malaysia because of the fact that not a lot of interaction was coming down here, even from a very historically well-covered country like China. There just wasn't a lot of interaction. So it's right around 300 CE that we get our first taste of greater civilizations and more development in the region. And that happened with the kingdom of Langasuka, which was a Hindu Buddhist monarchy that formed in northern Malay around 300 CE. It spread across most of the peninsula and into parts of Thailand. This kingdom made its impact as a powerful trade entity that got rich from sailing across the South China Sea. The kingdom maintained power in the region all the way until the 1400s CE. 
Another one that formed later and was equally influential was the Srivijaya Kingdom. It was established in the 600s out of the island of Sumatra, which is today in Indonesia. The kingdom eventually grew very powerful and ended up forming into an empire. Under King Rajendra Chola, the empire invaded Malay in 1025. They took over because trade was the backbone of the empire, and taking over parts of Malay would lead to more dominance of trade that happened in the South China Sea. Later on, Islam was introduced to the region by traders that came from the Middle East. It caught fire in the lower and working classes initially, and then spread throughout the nation. Parmeswara was a king in the late 1300s in Malacca, which is a southwestern city on the Malay Peninsula that very quickly got established as a port. Eventually, more development came out of Malacca, and a full-on civilization was established as a Muslim kingdom. This would be named a sultanate by Parmeswara, and influence would continue to come into the land. The sultanate benefited from its location in one of the richest trade corridors in the world. The Malacca Strait is the fastest way to sail from Arabia, Africa, and Europe to get to the trade that is available with China and the other powers east of the South China Sea. So because of this, Malacca became a rich trade kingdom. Malacca was at the center of the spice trade by connecting the west to the east, and the expansion of the economy allowed for cultural ventures into the kingdom. The Malay language was officially established and adopted nationwide, and because of more and more economic growth, the country was able to delve into its culture and establish what it meant to be a Malay Malaccan. Sultan Mansur Shah of Malacca led the Sultanate from 1459 to 1477, which was the golden age of the nation. Trade was expanded further than ever before, and it was able to connect with the West. Because of this, the growth of the spice trade was able to stimulate the economy to a vast level, and the Sultanate prospered even more than it ever had. Manuel I of Portugal, also known as Manuel the Fortunate, was king of Portugal from 1495 to 1521. His reign coincided with the expansion of the Age of Discovery. While Manuel I himself did not directly impact Malaysia, the Portuguese explorers that were neck deep in the Age of Discovery sailed under his reign and had a very big impact on the entire archipelago. The impact of Manuel I's reign on Malaysia, therefore, is primarily through the Portuguese presence in the region. Portuguese control of Malacca brought about changes in the regional trade dynamics and had cultural and economic implications for a lot of Malay. And this would all begin in 1511 when the first expeditions out to Malaysia were funded by Manuel I of Portugal. So in 1511, the first expedition was led by Commander Alfonso de Albuquerque. The Malay natives resisted the Portuguese as best they could, but eventually the numerous and powerful fleet of the Portuguese was able to overpower anyone who resisted them and established power in Malacca. The battle in Malacca was settled by the end of the war, which it came in 1511. Portuguese control was established over the region, and their influence would soon begin. The Portuguese set up their own administration in Malacca, turning it into a vital base for their trade and naval activities in the South China Sea. The city became a center for the spice trade by connecting Europe to lucrative markets in the East Indies, now dominated by Portugal. The Portuguese built several fortifications in Malacca to protect their interests. Notable among these is the Afemoso Fortress. The Portuguese left a lasting architectural legacy in the region which can still be seen in parts of it today. The Portuguese presence in Malacca had a significant cultural and religious impact. They introduced Christianity to the region and left behind churches and other Christian structures. The blending of Portuguese and local cultures also influenced the development of a unique Eurasian community known as the Christang or Malacca Portuguese, which still have descendants around to this very day. The Johor Strait, which holds Malacca and used to hold Singapore, was established as a sultanate 
by the Sultan of Malacca. It became a major trade hub and worked to defend Malay prominence from the Portuguese. Despite this, the Portuguese were able to hold onto Malacca despite great efforts from Johor. The expansion of power by Johor brought it into the conflict with local powers. Johor fought a war with Jambi, which is a competitor sultanate on the Indonesian island of Sumatra. The Indonesian Bugis nation from Sulawesi actually assisted Johor. This occurred in the 1657 war known as the Johor-Jambi War. Eventually, the war was won by Johor and the Bugis people. The Bugis people actually preferred Johor to their land back in Sulawesi and ended up making their own state called Selangor. Their descendants would go on to heavily influence Malaysia. But internationally, competition for dominance in the east brought the Netherlands and Portugal into conflict over territory in the South China Sea. The Johor Sultanate allied itself with the Dutch to end Portuguese rule. Another Battle of Malacca occurred in 1641. The Dutch were able to gain victory and establish control over Malacca by pushing out Portuguese influence. Dutch rule was established after capturing Malacca officially. The Dutch extended their influence across the Malay Archipelago and established control over key trading ports. The Dutch aimed to monopolize the spice trade, particularly out of Sumatra, Java, and Malacca. The main thing the Dutch were exporting were spices such as cloves, nutmeg, and pepper. The Dutch engaged in various economic activities, such as establishing spice plantations to continue to funnel spice trade through the region. Dutch governance was administered through the pre-established sultanate system to maintain stability in the land. In 1699, Sultan Mahmud of the Johor Sultanate was assassinated. Therefore, the power of Johor sultans would decline and the Burgess people would gain expanding power in the region. The Burgis most heavily inhabited Borneo as they traveled back and forth between there and Johor. Now, the thing is, the Johor Sultanate never went away with the establishment of Dutch rule. That's part of the fact that, one, the Dutch didn't take over the whole peninsula. They took over specific ports and tried to influence those. And then from there, started to influence more and more of the region. That was initially. But connection with the Johor Sultanate was still decent between the Dutch and the Johor. And relations with the Johor Sultanate were always decent with the Dutch. So eradicating the entity completely would have just caused unrest from the Malay people. So the Dutch never did that. But following up on what I just said about the assassination of Sultan Mahmud, in 1777, a Burgess man named Raja Kaisil gained himself a lot of political power in the region. He hoped to use his supporters to oust the then Sultan Abdul Jalil IV and make himself the monarch. Kaisil actually claimed he was the direct son of the murdered Sultan Mahmud. Kaisil and his supporters marched on the capital and forced Sultan Jalil into exile. Jalil tried to mount a resistance to the Kaisil coup. For this, Kassil ordered a plot against Jalil to have him killed. Eventually, it worked. The sultan in power, Jalil IV, was assassinated, and Kassil became the full sultan of Johor. Eventually, once Kassil was fully in power, he faced a stark resistance from the people. The Burgi's citizens supported the son of Sultan Jalil instead of Kassil himself. They ousted the then-sultan Kassil from the throne and placed Jalil's son there. And this established the Burgi's control of the Johor Sultanate. In 1786, a big shifting point occurred, because the island of Penang was taken over by the British, and Georgetown was established as a settlement. The Sultan of Kurda allowed this, because they wanted the British to settle the island for an expanded trade deal. However, Britain would go on to expand their control over both Malacca and Singapore. And then from there, they continued to expand across the archipelago. The Anglo-Dutch treaties of 1814 and 1824 brought the end to rising tensions between the British and the Dutch. 
The second agreement was the one that ratified the first and saw the Dutch concede Malacca to the British officially for recognition of Dutch control over Indonesia. In 1821, Siam, which is today Thailand, launched an invasion on the Malay Peninsula. The Sultan in power was ousted by the Siam invaders. There were many movements led by the Sultan to retake power in the region, but it would take a long time for them to succeed. Eventually, the Sultan was able to retake control, but the region was said to be mandated as a possession of Siam. British rule was expanded across Borneo, and the Sarawak region, which today makes up the eastern half of Malaysia, became a full British property. This was all also settled in that 1824 Anglo-Dutch Agreement, which is when British Malaysia was officially established as a colony. Britain then funded plantations to grow rubber, pepper, and tobacco. Chinese workers were the main labor force. As the Chinese population grew, so did tensions with the native Malay people. In 1853, the British removed all tariffs and taxes on tin exports through the Malacca Strait. This caused a vast increase in the amount of trade that came through the region, which of course made Malay very rich. This came in connection with the rise of the town of Kuala Lumpur. Kuala Lumpur was established in 1857 as a mining town in the Selangor region, which is ran by the Burgis. There were vast amounts of tin reserves here, which were mined in order to make the region rich. Chinese workers were incentivized to migrate here and work the mines. The tin boom that occurred throughout the 1850s caused this to become a very rich town and led to economic success for British Malaysia. The population of Malaysia continued to grow as Indian and Chinese working classes were established as the main working force in the land. The advancement of the economy led to more British immigrants coming into Malaysia in hopes to fund business ventures. This would define the end of the 1800s and would be very significant in the developments that happened in Malaysia throughout the 1900s. The next major event was the Great Depression, which hit British Malaysia extremely hard because of the fact that exports to other countries were reduced by over 50%. This subsequently led to a vast amount of unemployment, which was combated by limiting the amount of immigration into Malaysia. The hope was that less immigrants coming in meant that the people in Malaysia would be better able to get jobs. The economy would not start to look up for British Malaysia until the end of World War II. And speaking of World War II, it was very impactful for Malaysia. The Malay people faced a brutal direct invasion from Japan, and the occupation that came with it was even more brutal. Japanese occupation lasted from 1942 to 1945. The Malay resisted heavily and gave quite the fight to Japan every time they got the chance. Nonetheless, it would eventually be the British who liberated Malaysia after, you guessed it, the Battle of Malacca. Once the British were fully in control, the horrors of Japanese rule came out. Women were abused, used for sexual pleasure, and then thrown out of many communities. Children were used for entertainment, and by entertainment, I mean beaten, fought, or set up in staged fights to entertain the Japanese soldiers, and hundreds of thousands of men were killed dead for trying to resist the Japanese force. The pride of the Malay fighters created a strong sense of nationalism within the Malaysian people. After the war had ended, this continued to grow even more. Eventually, this brewed into the Malay emergency. In 1946, national movements in British Malaysia and Northern Borneo broke out to end British rule. The Malaya emergency occurred from 1948 to 1960. The communist parties in the nation united to form a military coalition known as the Malayan National Liberation Army. They were formed to challenge British rule. Guerrilla warfare was used by the communist pro-independence forces. The leader of the communist movement for independence was Chin Peng. One of the central strategies employed by the British was the creation of new villages. The British resettled rural populations into these fortified villages to isolate them from the influence 
and intimidation of the other fighters. This also aimed to cut off the guerrillas from their sources of support. The British employed military and police forces, including the Malayan Special Branch, to counter the insurgency. The Malayan People's Anti-Japanese Party, MPAJA, was a communist guerrilla force that had fought against the Japanese during World War II. They also played a really big role in this conflict and were employed by both sides in some cases to bring about the end of the war. Nonetheless, the war raged on. The British also implemented the Briggins Plan, named after British General Sir Harold Briggins, which focused on the establishment of new villages, intelligence gathering, and the separation of insurgents from the local population. It involved both military and recon measures. The British approach, combining military and civil measures, proved successful in isolating the insurgents and gained the support of the population. By the late 1950s, the MCP had been significantly weakened. The declaration of a state of emergency officially ended on July 31, 1960. The nationalist movement in the Malay Peninsula united to form the Federated Malay States as an independent state from Britain. Northern Borneo remained under British control for a short period. Independence of the Federated Malay States was officially achieved in 1957. The Barasan National Political Commission, or BN, led the move for independence and then took full political control of the nation. The BN ruled Malaysia from independence all the way until 2018, through electoral fraud, restrictive laws, and a platform of Malay racial superiority. In 1963, Sarawak, Singapore, and Northern Borneo agreed to join the new Federation of Malaysia. However, Singapore was removed from the Union in 1965. And if you want to know more about why that happened, check out episode 79 that we did. Quite a while back, but it fully covered the history of Singapore. Following all of this, there was the Communist Insurgency in Malaysia, also known as the Second Malayan Emergency. This was a prolonged armed conflict that took place from 1968 to 1989. In 1968, an election was decided in Kuala Lumpur, which saw the Malaysian Communist Party set both sides off because of the results. Communist Socialist forces formed a coalition in Kuala Lumpur to challenge the victorious party. The unrest that arose from this caused Parliament to be suspended in the nation for a few years. Parliament did return in 1971, but there would not be stability in Malaysia. From that year on, there would be clashes between the Communist forces and their opposition to take control of the government. Peace negotiations between the Malaysian government and the MCP began in the 1980s. The talks resulted in the signing of the Hat Yai Peace Accord in 1989. The accord was heavily guided by the fact that the British, who fought against the communist force and its supporters, were the ones who kind of won this war. It is considered an armistice towards the end because the accord did lead to the disarmament and disbanding of the MCP, which did end the insurgency. But nonetheless... There was a lot of lives lost on both sides, and the influence of the British made it very hard for the communist side to get any traction at all. But nonetheless, the end of this period also happened around the same time as the presidency of Mathathir Muhammad. Mathathir Muhammad became president on July 16, 1981. Mathathir implemented various economic policies and development plans during his first term. His ambitious vision was encapsulated in the Vision 2020 initiative which aimed to transform Malaysia into a fully developed nation by 2020. Mathathir prioritized industrialization and modernization, leading Malaysia through a period of rapid economic growth. He focused on infrastructure development, including the construction of the Kuala Lumpur International Airport and the Patronus Towers. Mathathir championed the development of the national car project, Proton Saga, with the goal of promoting the country's automotive industry, because up to that point before, only a very small percentage of the population could easily access road vehicles. 
Mathathir was known for his authoritarian Mathathir was known for his authoritarian leadership style. He implemented measures to maintain political stability, including the arrest and detention of political opponents through the International Security Act, which he also implemented. Malaysia faced significant economic challenges during the Asian financial crisis. Mathathir controversially imposed capital controls and rejected assistance from the International Monetary Fund. He adopted unorthodox economic policies to protect the country's economy and did more after that. However, on October 31, 2003, Mathathir retired from the position of Prime Minister after 22 years in office. His resignation is marked by the end of an era, and he was succeeded by Abdullah Ahmad Badawi. Badawi's administration lasted from 2003 to 2009. Abdullah Badawi introduced a series of political reforms known as the Islam Hadhari, which was Civilization Islam. It was a concept emphasizing good governance, transparency, development in line with Islamic principles, and overall stability in the nation. The ruling coalition, which was the Barasan National, faced challenges in the 2008 general elections, losing a significant number of seats. This led to Badawi's resignation in 2009 because up to this point, the BN had dominated for so many decades that losing anything at all was seen as a failure. However, Badawi was succeeded by Najib Razak. Najib Razak became Malaysia's sixth prime minister in 2009. His administration faced economic challenges, including the impact of the global financial crisis that shook up the world in 2008. Najib introduced the One Malaysia concept. One Malaysia is a concept introduced to promote national unity. According to Razak, the eight values of the concept are high performance, culture, accuracy, knowledge, innovation, integrity, strong will, loyalty, and wisdom. One of the significant controversies during his tenure was that one Malaysia's development business, known as the Developmental Berhad, went through a scandal. There were widespread allegations of misappropriation of funds and corruption within the company that made it seem like Najib was embezzling the money from this foundation for himself. The accusations of this led to international investigations and widespread protests. So, of course, he ended up stepping down. Changes in the way the economy was structured was paired with new laws around trade. This allowed for Malaysia to take advantage of its prime location on the eastern trade routes. Malaysia exported a lot of goods, and eventually the economy was growing 8% year over year. In 2018, former President Mahathir made a surprising political comeback to lead the opposition coalition, which was known as Pakatan Harapan. He ended up leading them to victory in the general elections held on May 9, 2018. This marked the first time that the BN had lost an election since the founding of independent Malaysia. At the age of 92, Mathathir became the world's oldest elected leader when he took office on May 10, 2018. During his second term, Mathathir pursued a reform agenda, including addressing issues related to corruption, improving governance, and working towards greater inclusivity in Malaysian society. Mathathir's second term as prime minister was marked by political turmoil within the ruling coalition. He resigned on February 24, 2020. This was a move that led to the collapse of the Pakatan Harapan government. In 2022, former Prime Minister Najib Razak began serving a 12-year prison sentence in August. This was done after the country's highest court rejected his final appeal over the accusations of embezzling funds from the One Malaysia Development Berhad. Also in this year, there were general elections held in November, and the resulting parliament was divided between several multi-party coalitions. Following protracted negotiations, four of the blocs formed a governing alliance with longtime opposition leader Anwar Ibrahim of the dying Pakatan Harapan rising up as the prime minister. This coalition emboldened the fact that opposition parties are very valuable in Malaysia 
after decades of domination by one party. And while all this was going on, there continued to be development in Malaysia. Urbanized areas like Kuala Lumpur and Malacca continued to develop and gain more and more access to technology and economic advancement. And all of that brings us to the present. Malaysia ranks very high on the Human Development Index and is one of the richest nations in the world. It's considered 25th in most robust free economies in the nation. And when you're talking about a world that considers over 200 different nations in that scale, that is quite impressive. For decades, the nation struggled with political corruption because of the domination by the Barrison National Party. However, since the elections in 2018, the nation is in a much more politically competitive space. There is, however, a large gap in wealth in Malaysia because of the severe underdevelopment of the rural areas. But despite any struggles, Malaysia is widely considered one of the biggest success stories of a nation that was not well-developed less than 50 years ago. The nation draws in a lot of tourism, a lot of foreign investment, and has grown to be a beautiful, well-structured society in a world that makes that very, very hard for young nations. And that gets us to the very end, where I always like to do a takeaway or a mindset, and with Malaysia, that's going to be, remember that it's a marathon, not a sprint. Malaysia is a country that has been around and occupied. Malaysia is a country that has been around and occupied for thousands of years, and it has taken thousands of years to go through the different growing pains changes, up and downs, and struggles to get to be where it is today. This nation is now one of the most developed countries in Southeast Asia and dominates a lot of the development in Asia Pacific. Of course, its southern neighbor Singapore is the economic powerhouse, but much easier to distribute wealth across a very teeny tiny population in small area compared to a massive one that is 30 million people or more. So the reason I say that with Malaysia is the fact that it is a very great developed nation. Now, it's getting there, at least. I say that with you, and I say you can apply that to your life, and we all can, and I can, because of the fact that we all need to give ourselves more time. Malaysia has given itself time. It took year after year, decade after decade, and in some cases, many centuries, to develop into the Malaysia we know today, to unite people, to get ethnic tensions settled, to figure out what this nation was going to be all about. I say with you, it can absolutely be something similar because whatever your goal is, it's going to take time. Nothing worth earning happens overnight. Nothing worth earning is easy. So just be like Malaysia and accept the fact that whatever you're going after, no matter if that's a great partner or a great relationship, it's success in your career, it's love from someone, it's health, it's being jacked, it's anything, it's going to take time. And you do need to bite your time and remember that showing up every day and working on yourself and working on whatever's around you a little bit is better than trying to smash it all in one month or one year and try and completely change your life. It's much better to go 10 years straight of just working, just trying to become a better person, doing a little bit, bit by bit, because, or as they say, Rome wasn't built in a day, but they laid bricks every hour. So that's the truth with you. That's the truth in Malaysia. And all of it comes back to the truth that it's a sprint. It's a marathon, not a sprint. And you absolutely need to go on this marathon to figure out your life, to get to where you need to be, because every great, huge thing is going to take a marathon's worth of work. And it's okay, because you do have the time to put in. So with all that being said, that's going to be all for me. I'm very, very glad you guys were here. I'm very glad you listened. I very much hope you guys got something out of it, because I, I enjoyed this one. I've got a big thing for the Pacific Islands in general, but when we get to the bigger ones, the ones in Southeast Asia and Asia Pacific, I really get into it and it's been a long time since I've studied Malaysia 
and I've brought up before that Singapore is one of my favorite countries, so this is all just very fun for me, and I'm very glad you guys are here to do this with me. So just wanted to say thank you, and wanted to say my name is Reese Garlinski, this is Young History, and that was Malaysia. Hope you guys have a good one.